0: Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Hello everyone. This is Teresa Chan and I'm welcoming you back to another episode of Mac PFD Spark. We're so excited to have two really amazing women speaking to us today about two very different topics. The first is Dr. Paige Morahan. Paige is someone who has been working in faculty development for quite some time and is actually an Emeritus Professor at Drexel University in Philadelphia. She has been doing work in development of women and also faculty members from abroad for a very long time. She is the brains behind the ELAM program, which is a very notable women in academic medicine program in the US. I spoke to her about her experiences with coaching women and men also in different cultures around the act of self-promotion. Many people find it hard to be able to speak about themselves and the great works that they've done. And sometimes this can be a barrier in terms of their advancement. Whether you're a woman who doesn't like to talk about herself, or someone from another culture where it's actually socially inappropriate probably to do so in other circumstances. Unfortunately, self-promotion is something you kinda gotta do in order to become an academic in today's world because of the cultural paradigms that we have. Paige takes us through an exploration of all of this so that we can think about how we might gracefully do that in ways that are culturally aligned with what we know and actually appreciate. The next speaker is Dr. Christina Shenvey. Christina is an amazing motivator. She recently ran a course called Time of Your Life that really focuses on how we can find time for ourselves and organize our lives better. We were very lucky to have her do this as a digital course for our Mac PFD community, but I took some time to speak with her about how we might avoid procrastination through time management. Christina is from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and she is someone who has done amazing work in this area with undergraduate learners, but she also has been now doing more work in the continuing professional development and faculty development spaces. Listen into to what they have to say. Hello everyone, this is Teresa Chan again, your host for Mac PFD Spark, and I'm here today with another one of my friends and colleagues, this time again from outside of McMaster's community, but someone who definitely has a lot of pearls of wisdom to share. Dr. Paige S. Morahan is a PhD scientist, Professor Emerita at Drexel University College of Medicine. She is the founder of a program that some of you might have heard of called ELAM, and she'll tell us a little bit about that shortly, and also the co-director and founder of the FAMER Institute, which is an exciting health professions and medical education institute that's international. So Paige, maybe you can say hi to everyone and then tell us a little bit both about Elam and Famer, because I think people should know about them.
1: Well, I certainly agree that they should know about Elam and Famer. I started my career in basic science, specifically in virology, umpteen years ago, and I've spent my entire career in academic health centers. I moved up the ranks academically and eventually became chair of microbiology and immunology at a forerunner of Drexel University College of Medicine and uh, was also very active in the forerunner to the group on faculty affairs for the AAMC. So I've had a long interest in faculty development. About 25 years ago I was offered the opportunity to start the ELAM program, as Teresa said, which stands for Executive Leadership and Academic Medicine Program for Women, although we're now serving also women in academic dentistry, academic public health, and in NIH and some some broader areas, more recently also pharmacology, pharmacy schools. Then that led to the opportunity to be invited to start a similar program focused on health professions education, Sponsored by then ECFMG, which was developing a specific nonprofit called the Foundation for Advancement of International Medical Education and Research. And so that's been going on for 20 years. I feel really blessed to be able to have been with these programs since their inception, and I'm still involved uh, with them.
0: Oh, those are so exciting. I mean, yeah. it sounds like the first. One was to meet a need around advancement of women in academics, which we know is a problem regardless of what sector, unless you're in a very female-dominated discipline, such as, for instance, our nursing colleagues sometimes in rehab school that we have here. We see a lot more women in the ranks of leadership there because of the nature of the profession, but uh, there's a lot of women in other specialties, as you've pointed out in other professions where climbing the ranks is, is a little bit more perilous and a little bit more steep, let's say. So that's very interesting. And I and I love the idea of the Tamer Institute and what it's done to help make accessible health professions, educations, concepts and help to really advance things in terms of the scholarly work that people can do in a whole bunch of different areas all around the world that are not always driven by the need to have high cost programs where they have to fly to North America to do it, but rather, a FAMER, I think, takes it on the road to make sure that there's access and availability to some of these mentors and resources that are available in any part of the world. So I think that they're both really cool programs to have started, and you're such a founding mother in many ways of faculty development. So thank you so much for being here with me today.
1: FAMER, um, we now have, as you said, we've got 11 regional programs around the world, two in China, four in India, one in Indonesia, one in Sub-Saharan Africa, one in Egypt, one in Chile for the the Spanish-speaking people, and Brazil for Portuguese. It really does not have an international reach, eh? We have over 2,000 fellows when we count the Global Institute and all of these. We're developing a community of practice in health professions education. Yes. And I
0: think that that is all really exciting work. So thank you so much for paving the way and hopefully our little foray into open access kind of faculty development with, with this podcast and also with other resources on macpfd.ca can add to the fabric of that uh, spirit of building that community. So we're doing it what we can at our shop and hopefully uh, we can, we can also contribute to, to the resources that are available to this broader community. So thanks so much for joining me. And I think that you had picked out one One specific topic to talk about with me that I thought would really resonate with a lot of people and understanding that you have done this work in women's development within academia and also the international work that you've done, I think it really centers me to understand why you picked this topic. And so the topic that you picked was a term called graceful self-promotion. And I just thought when you mentioned it, I was like, yes, that would be a very interesting topic to explore. But can you tell me a little bit more about what this term actually means? So before we go into why, why you developed the term, but like, what does it mean? What does it mean to be graceful in your self-promotion?
1: It means to move away from the concept of self-promotion as being an aggressive car salesman and to view it being authentic and helping people and teaching people. Okay. And that we feel more comfortable with. In academics, one reason we're there is because we like to teach. We're educating others.
0: Fair. Okay. So that's interesting. So the idea of self-promotion not as an act of narcissism, nor as a self-centered move to want to be in the spotlight, but rather that maybe, for instance, like I've just been your hype girl for a couple of minutes now, talking about all the projects you've done, it might be inherently hard for you to speak about those things and those great initiatives that you founded in your own way, if you were just seeing it as self-promotion. But if you were to reframe it as, hey, I can teach Teresa something about my journey as a woman in academics, then all of a sudden you can speak more about that. And I would learn from you. And it's both an act of still promotion and yet you're really promoting the the artifacts and the contributions you've had not not really yourself is that
1: correct that's a perfect way to look at it i hope that teresa you yourself will consider applying for elam at some point yes i will talk to my chair about it
0: But the idea there would be that now that I've heard about what Elam is, I might be Googling it, looking it up. And if you hadn't talked about your project, if you hadn't highlighted that as something that you wanted us to talk about today, there might be a whole bunch of our listeners who never would have found out about it. And so I see the connection of self-promotion being an essential skill as an educator, a developer, a leader, that you actually have to talk about the things that you're doing or else no one will know about it. So, yeah, tell me about how you came across this concept and how you developed it and why. And then we'll go into a little bit more about how to actually do it in a later segment of the show.
1: Thanks. really started developing it quite early in the ELAM program. I'd say by the third year, I had come across a number of women fellows who had real challenges in talking about their accomplishments. And particularly these were women, and I, there's one I particularly remember who was a psychiatrist raised in India, and she had really great difficulty because in her culture it was so ingrained that the women stay in the background and that it's rude to put yourself forward, etc. And then when we started FAMER, I discovered it was a – A real issue with many of the, what we now know as interdependent cultures from Africa, Asia, and South America. So I coined this term and started talking about graceful self-promotion. And then wrote a column in in 2004 just describing it because I felt it was so important. And then we had the opportunity to, with a famer alumnae, Zareen Zaidi, to update it in a chapter that was published last year. Very
0: cool. And so I think that we should probably talk a little bit about the mechanics of it. We can definitely have a link to some of the content that you talked about in our show notes but I think that you can probably give us some tips for how to go ahead and do some of this and how to do gracefully and rather than and reframing it but also how
1: to do it in the way that you've kind of described it so go ahead that's authentic and comfortable that's the whole purpose you mentioned tips i am a great one for teaching small ways you can try things out that are not big and risky in leadership with small ways to that can change the system. So as far as graceful self promotion the first one which you've already mentioned is to change one's mindset from being a car salesman to being an educator and a generative sharing your knowledge with others not being competitive trying to keep it secret to yourself and helping others. So as an example here's one that I, I see quite often. A woman, and I'm going to talk, I've dealt a lot with women. Women scientists publishes a paper and she doesn't know what to do with it. Now, most of the men have already sent it to the McGill internal organ to publish so that they get credit for it. But the women do, woman doesn't do that. So i talk talked to her about how This is very useful to send the article to the chair of a department, for instance, to say, sending this to you to add to the publications for the annual report. I know this is helpful in presenting the department in its best light. So you're, you're doing in a graceful way, you're telling the chair what you've done, but you're also indicating that you want to help the chair in doing his or her job to let the department look its best. That's kind of the, and it's a mental change that is required.
0: Yeah, I can see how that'd be a a shift, right? Because if I have some good news to share, it's, it's sometimes... You just want to share it with your innermost crew. Maybe you are friends with your chair or division director, and so it's easy for you to share. But for others, there's a huge power differential there. So I can imagine there might be quite a bit of insecurity even in trying to figure out how you would even write that email. I think the way that you couched it today, it's a lot more palatable for me to think, oh, yeah, they they wouldn't know about this paper and that it would help them with their annual review or for their twitter feed or for other kind of like uh things that people have to get done now and it's a great way to kind of uh, forward it on to, uh, to some of the some of the folks that are doing those initiatives i like that little kind of flip in the head as to how you would actually message that and let people know i do fault myself as one of those people that publishes papers and assumes people will just magically know. (laughs) But at the same time, I've used other tools such as uh, Google Scholar, ResearchGate as ways that people who, if they want to know what I've been up to, can actually actively subscribe and follow my academic trajectory towards that so that I can I can actually highlight what I do without actually having to say anything. And so that's another strategy you can think of. That's a graceful way to put yourself out there. And in fact, our department has made it mandatory for everyone to have a Google Scholar account and keep it up to date. And so I have to keep that up to date as part of many of the other things I have to keep to up to date. And that way our, our chair can actually subscribe to all the faculty members now that he has access to all of our Google Scholar accounts and he can kind of keep up to date as to what is going on with the with the department, which is, I think, a smart way to do it as a leader, to set up the system so people don't have to necessarily humble break to you, but rather you're surveilling and keeping on top of things. So I think both of those ways to do that is, is pretty cool.
1: And you could still write to your chair and say, I've just posted this to Google Scholar as in the system you've done and to, or you to know about for the department. You mentioned right. something, Teresa, that we said you often just share it with your most intimate colleagues, And here's kind of another related tip. It really helps if this if you can develop a group where you share what someone else has done, and they share what you have done. Because then you are not at all involved in touting yourself, but your friend uh, Mary or Jim are the ones that are saying, you know, did you know that Teresa has this uh, talk at Amy that that uh, she's part of with the luminary Yvonne Steiner.
0: I think that that really resonates with me as well. I think having a crew that looks out for each other, that amplifies, that sponsors forward. And you don't always have to be someone more senior to sponsor someone. I think that that's what you're getting at is that your peers can be a great support network to support you, to say, this is someone who's awesome, and did you know that they do this great work? And so I think that with a lot of my research collaborators, even if I don't actually publish the same paper with them, I'm reading their stuff because it's related in the field. I love being able to amplify their voices and being able to highlight junior scholars or new voices, and that can be a tweet on Twitter where I might say, "Congratulations on so and so and so and so for their great work on this paper. I loved every word." It could be uh, simple things like at a, an update meeting, someone might have forgotten that they they won a big award or grant, and say, "Oh, uh, as a WhatsApp up update, uh, did you know that so and so has just won this big national award?" I think. They forgot to mention, but I just wanted to make sure that we got the shout out. And I think those little gestures are ways that we can really amplify each other. If you're a male colleague listening, one of the things that the he for she movement has kind of really brought to light is that a lot of women don't feel comfortable with that even graceful self-promotion or promotion of any type and I think one of the big things you can do to step up is be part of the he for she movement and highlight when your colleagues do great work so they don't have to and so I think
1: that that's something that we can definitely
0: fold into the fabric of what we do.
1: And in this age with so much information it's even I think even more important to do this. The second major tip is, which again, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier, like writing something and assuming that your chair will learn about it. That is an erroneous thought. Let's say that's a myth. Let's cross that off our list right now. A good work is not just rewarded because it occurs. You need to make sure that people know. Maybe 50 years ago, when there weren't so many papers published, and it was a smaller group, that might not have been as necessary, but it certainly is necessary now. And you to realize your own responsibility for your career, you're the only one that is truly invested in whatever you want to achieve. Your chair might be very happy to have you stay where you are, because you're doing a very good job. And he or she doesn't have to worry about your unit and just be happy and do what you're doing for the next 20 years. Whereas you may have some other aspirations and realize you're the only person who is responsible. You don't have your parents are not part of your career. (laughs) So it's not like when you were in school and they could, you know, promote you for this or that. You're now the one who's in charge of your career. And if you don't do it, you cannot depend on anyone else to do it. Even mentors and sponsors can help if you're fortunate to have a mosaic of mentors and a sponsor or two. However, they can't do everything. You have to be the one in charge.
0: Agreed. You have to be in the driver's seat of your own career. And even my mom can't keep up sometimes with all the publications that I put out sometimes. So I'm the only one that really knows. (laughs) Well, my mom's retired now, so she shouldn't have to read stuff too much and she can go and bake and and do all the fun things. So I I shouldn't make her accountable for those things. But even then, Mama Chan definitely uh, is someone who will not be able to keep up with all the details of everything I do as much as she likes to be involved in my life. And if your mom can't keep up with it, Probably there's very few other people that can. I think that that putting that in perspective means that you do have to educate people about what you've been up to. And I think it's also a great way when you put yourself out there for others to then see themselves as following in your stead. I think that's the other part that really kind of jumped out to me is that especially for women in academia, in some of our disciplines and professions, sometimes people don't have any women mentors that they see out there and doing stuff and so when you hide it all there is a young woman that might have aspired to be more like you that then chooses a different path because they didn't see themselves represented in the people that they see around being successful so i'll throw down the gauntlet there for some of the
1: listeners to think about being a role model we forget how much we are role models i to give you an example from my career i did a workshop years and years ago for University of Pennsylvania Women's Group, and talked about some tips for getting publications out, because this was for junior faculty, you know, who all, at that time, you know, you had to have, I forget, some incredible number of publications to be promoted to a associate professor, and uh, so gave some tips. And years later, one of the women, I think may have been in the ELAM program, or and came across her, and she said, you don't know how valuable that information was. And so we don't know what impact we have on people. So that gets back to the role modeling. And back to no one, you can't expect anyone to read your mind, to know what you've accomplished. In ELAM, we have specific activities, and we've added some of these to the FAMER program, to get fellows on their leaders' radar screen. Maybe radar screen is not the word to use now. <laughs> I don't mean, know. What would be, what would be a, a word to use in this, in this age, Teresa? Uh, I, I don't know. Twitter feed? <laughs> <laughs> that might be it. Yeah. How do you get on your dean's on your Twitter feed? And, you know, you have to be the one that, that gets on their Twitter feed so that they know you exist. Otherwise, you'll be overlooked for potentially interesting opportunities.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think it goes both ways now with a lot of the social media is that following your dean actually might be a great way to find out what's going on because a lot of the time People in leadership positions are looking for more help, are actually looking to sponsor people. They are posting about opportunities of job postings or, or chairships or grants and endowments and other things like that. And if you're not kind of in the know, you really can't benefit from some of that sponsorship that people are trying to put out there. So I think connecting in any way, whether that's by email or, or someday in person when the pandemic settles down. And these are the kind of things that we can do to kind of uh, be better connected. And so I think there's a lot of leaders that have turned to social media to, to improve their communication strategy with their constituents and the people that they are serving. But then also on the flip side, I think it's also important for us as citizens to pay attention to what our leaders are up to. And that can be very powerful as well.
1: That's all part of that network. And kind of a, a kind of sub tip in that is how many of us think about congratulating our boss? or something good they've done. Whether it's a paper, or whether it's the way they handle a meeting, you know, they usually get the problems. So if you, this comes back to kind of that generativity helping people. If you send emails, uh, notes to to your boss about things you like that are true, you know, authentic. We teach in both programs, we teach kind of how to do gratitude. You're specific. What's the impact on you and authentically thanking them? It's amazing. You then helps you get on their Twitter feed.
0: (laughs) I think that's an important thing to remember, too, is that graceful self-promotion might also be reframed as being helpful in spotting other people's talents and other people's contributions. So it's then just graceful promotion maybe, when you're not talking about yourself, but I think that singing the praise of people that are within your team, within your, your institution, is another way of thinking about graceful self-promotion as a group, right? Yeah. And so being a cheerleader in those ways, I think, can be very helpful in raising that community, raising awareness of the great work that some of your colleagues are doing. And I think that that is also a great act to make people feel good and feel empowered and connected. Uh, within your institution
1: i call that kind of developing a graceful self-promotion network where you're helping each each other exactly yeah for sure and you can take it to a strategic level i know of groups that have formed within the elam program at a given school where they work together strategically you know that a position is coming coming open on the faculty finance committee that manages the clinical practice and you'd like to get a woman somebody who would represent your interest so how do you promote that particular person in the places that are useful to be a viable candidate when that position comes open or you know that the chair of pediatrics is going to be open in a year. How do you promote women, again, there could be talented men as well, for who may be overlooked in the candidate pool and have them be invited to do ground rounds this year so that when the search committee forms next year, they'll already be in the group because they will have met and help them make sure they meet some of the influential people on your campus when they come for grand rounds. And so then they won't be overlooked. So they are interesting strategic ways you can think about this graceful self-promotion network.
0: Yeah. And I think putting it another way, it's it's really just having a network of people that help each other. And as much as in the age of all the equity and diversity and inclusion work that we have to do and hopefully it's not all within one ethnicity or one race or one specific gender but rather these networks can exist across genders across disciplines across professions and across genders across identities so that we can just help a whole bunch of people out in a loose association and I think that at the end of the day what was used to be the old boys club was people that were meaningfully just trying to help each other probably but sometimes unaware of some of the implicit bias that established the, the power dynamics and structures that are but I think we can flip that paradigm and say now who could we sponsor forward that's not like ourselves who could we help that is in many ways, in addition to the fabric of what we do, not looking for the same, but rather looking for different and actually using the same structures and the same science and the same connectivity that we've always used to promote people but rather to do it with a different kind of agenda and lens in mind. So to specifically sponsor somewhere forward because you know that you don't have many members of the BIPOC community, for instance, in your faculty, it might be good to spotlight guest speakers from other institutions and bring them in because there is a chairship coming up and that you want them to consider your shop as a potential outlook and a, and a career opportunity later on. And that's part of the recruitment cycle when you're trying to recruit more diverse faculty, but on the flip side, it's also thinking about how you can spotlight some of the talent that you have in house and and feature them and make sure they feel supported as well. so I think all of those things are really important in today's day and age
1: as part of that, it's nominating people for awards and they't like to go to opportunities like elam and other professional development opportunities so that's a kind of another aspect of it besides jobs and openings in themselves that's a great idea
0: i would assume some institutions might even have things like nomination committees for awards and stuff like that and so that's what you know you're really hitting your stride when you can institutionalize some of these these structures that you're suggesting so i definitely think that there's room for us to all grow in those areas for sure
1: then the kind of the final concept in graceful self-emotion is to remember the importance of being authentic to yourself and your culture that you grew up in, your discipline. You don't want this to come across as the car salesman always to me comes across as an actor type. and you, you don't want that. This is really truly you. I really love putting younger people, you were mentioning, Teresa, younger people in, in career for opportunities. It just gives me incredible pleasure to do that. So back to being authentic, if you come from an interdependent culture, such as the Asian and much of the African and South American, you do need to flex or pivot some, pivots seems to be the word of the day, to incorporate some of the in independent culture, which is Europe and the U.S. The U.S. is kind of way out here on being probably the most individualistic culture there is. So it means developing a comfort with a mixture. If you're from an independent culture, you need to incorporate some of the independent cultures, which often means listening more. This is a skill that we focus on in both of these leadership programs that I've been part of is how do you learn to listen and stop when someone is saying something immediately thinking, how am I going to respond to, to ping pong, what I call ping pong ideas with them? How do I really listen with curiosity? You know, what are they saying to me? So a lot of it, and in, in the chapter that we just finished last year, We do a lot to talk about the dependent and interdependent, independent and interdependent cultures. The other area is one that personally I've learned over the years is for those of you who've taken the Myers-Briggs type indicator, I'm an introvert. However, when you put on a leadership program for 30 days, like we in person, like we used to do for Famer until this year, I had to learn how to pace myself and i will tell you my best time was when we were in a conference center where my room was literally steps away from the break room so i could go into my room for 15 minutes and be quiet and then i could come back and be able to be on on again and so one needs to needs to learn again to know your yourself well enough how do you need how do you need to rejuvenate your energy? Is it being alone or is it being with a lot of people? I think it's kind of the opposite right now during the COVID time is if you're an extrovert, how do you kind of keep up your energy when you may not be interacting with people as much? You know, can you get the same enjoyment out of doing uh, t- Twitter and Facebook and, or FaceTime? So I think, again, that's another part of it.
0: I think those are all really good reflections to, to, to for people to think about right now because we're recording this obviously at the time of the pandemic and we know that there have been big changes and maybe if you're listening to this in the future, maybe everything's all back to normal, but I doubt it. And there will be probably some changes that have occurred that will have changed the way that we do work. And I anticipate things like remote work might be more prevalent and and other types of interaction might be more what we do rather than what we traditionally have done in the past.
1: I agree with you completely. I think a definite change is going to be more online teaching and more working solitarily. But I think all the more reason if you're not going to be around people all the time
0: and you can't just like, yay, uh, you know, shout in your office. Oh my gosh. And everyone rushes to the door to see what's going on and find out that you just won a big grant. You may have to find other ways to share the knowledge about what you've been up to with your remote work team. And I don't think uh, thinking about how you do that. And as a leader, how do you foster that? Right. So I know that in some of the groups that I am involved with, we have a default channel that's about singing the praises of either yourself or others, and we call it Thanks, Humble, Brag, (laughs) and and it's a way for people to give thanks to people, congratulate them, but then also if they want to just brag about themselves, that's totally okay as a code of conduct, and we normalize it by having some of the leaders step forward and do it early and often. And I think that's been really cool because, for instance, sometimes I even don't know that I published a paper and one of my colleagues in these collaborative spaces will post it already but congrats to in and they'll tag me in it and I'll, I'll be like oh that's so cool my paper's out and also everybody thinks it's cool so that's I think a great way to systematize some of these things as we dive into new ways of connecting with people and so I try to do the same thing on Twitter with some of my colleagues if I've been kind of following them on Google Scholar when I know that something has come up and I'm like, oh, that's a really cool article. I will actually reflect on, you know, what it is that I found cool. If I can be a little bit more substantive, just like we know in education, we know that good feedback is going to be very specific and highlight certain things. So sometimes I've even quoted something from their paper at them to let them know like this was a really powerful phrase that you turned or or, this kind of work is really great and explain why I thought that their work was fantastic. And, And I think that that all helps people calibrate and feel a good about themselves, but then maybe even start thinking and being a little braver about how they message themselves and how they see themselves.
1: So let's take that a little further. I think that's a very important concept, Teresa, is bringing up other people's work. We're in an era where we need curated information from people that we trust. And I really welcome short summaries that friends of mine do on their blogs of other people's work and highlight it or on LinkedIn or And I try to do the same thing on a Facebook page. And people, again, know that I, that I put out information that, is, that I view as scientifically valid, etc. And I think just a, a short summary, as you're saying, about what struck you is a powerful way to amplify people's voices. That, again, goes back to that network of graceful self-promotion.
0: All right. I think we've come full circle. So it's time for us to close out. Just to summarize, it sounds like you have a couple of tips that we've gone over, but I'm just going to bring it all together again. The first one is to rethink about the way you think about self-promotion altogether, but rather it's not self-promotion, but it's education about yourself to others. So I think that big paradigm shift is like the first big tip. Another tip is that try to be generative and helpful when you're educating others because you might be a role model. You might just be helping your chair find out about things that they're supposed to know about. And maybe you're just uh, paving the way for others to see themselves reflected in the kind of work that you do. I think another tip that you had was around realizing that you're the only one that's truly invested in your own career advancement and that your bosses and sponsors and mentors and colleagues can help along the way. But you have to be the author of your own biography in many ways. I think another tip that you had was that you can build a network around self-promotion, but rather it's just a promotion network at that point because you're not self-promoting anything, but rather you have others that are going to look out for you and you'll look out for them in return and that build that promotion network so that they can be spotting opportunities for you, sending you grant suggestions. It might be that they're going to highlight papers that you've uh, written and put you up for awards or speakerships whenever possible. And I think that kind of network is something that's worth investing in and then doing the same for others in return, obviously. And I think that last part is being authentic and realizing that you actually have done some of that work and that you do own that expertise and that you can add to the fabric of what's out there already. And you don't have to shy away from it, but being sensitive to your own limitations of fatigue and and needing that introverted thinking time and all of that stuff, you, you you have to navigate some of those roadblocks along the way, but that to acknowledge all of that stuff. So Thank you so much for your time. It's been great to have a conversation with someone who is really a legend in faculty development. So as a faculty developer, I bow to your prowess and and all this other stuff. But you've been someone that has really changed the way that we do health professions, education, leadership and research. And you've had such an impact. So thank you so much for your time, Paige.
1: And that was a beautiful summary. Thank you, Teresa.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. Okay. Nice talking to you. And we'll check the rest of you out later when we have a different episode. Okay, bye-bye. All right, everyone, May 25th, 2021, it's a Tuesday. You need to mark down this in your calendar now. It's a free conference, and it's going to be our 40th annual day in faculty development. It's going to be titled Academia Disrupted, Innovations and Dilemmas Prompted by the COVID-19 Pandemic, and I'm so excited to co-host this event with Dr. Ruth Chen. She is an inspired leader herself, and she's definitely been right here with us as part of our advisory council, advising us on how to navigate this difficult pandemic world. And so she is 100% correct. This is the topic we had to cover. And we're really excited to have some amazing speakers, workshops, and just cool ideas being presented about what we've all been going through in the past year. So I know it sometimes feels like this pandemic has never ended and is never going to end but I think that we've really risen to the occasion to respond in the way that we have as faculty and we should celebrate those successes. So join us on this day. It's going to be a virtual conference so it's open to everyone in the world as long as you can come to our time zone. Obviously McMaster faculty will be prioritized if we have a waitlist but we're hoping that all of you can join our conference and make it the best virtual conference ever. So check it out on our event calendar. We're really excited to be having this happen. All right, hello everyone. My name is Teresa Chan and you've listened to my voice before, but I have a new voice for you. Someone who's actually from very far away, but digitally we can connect. Dr. Christina Shenvi is not from McMaster, but maybe I'll have a kick it to her to introduce herself because she has an awesome voice and a great mic.
2: Thanks, Teresa. It's exciting to talk with you, and I'm hoping some of your listeners will find this very relevant and very interesting. But I'm an emergency medicine physician at the University of North Carolina. And I'm also the director of what's called the Office of Academic Excellence. So I get to work with medical students and help them attain academic success. And a lot of that is not just through studying and learning things or test taking skills, but a lot of it is through time management and avoiding procrastination. So that's where I developed a real interest in this topic. Oh,
0: very cool. Because, you know, this is a faculty development podcast. And so even though we were all maybe those kind of students, and we wished that we had your coaching at that point, most of us did not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we did not have a doctor's enemy to teach us how to tame it. Yes. And many of us still have those problems, even as junior, senior and <laughs> even career faculty. That's know,
2: one of the common things I hear is that, you know, I figured some of this out, but I wish somebody could have just laid it all out for me.
0: Yeah. So your med students are super lucky. <laughs> and I was going to say, because I'd seen your work at a national conference, because I, we had run into each other on the circuit, I, I did kind of broach to you one time an email that maybe we could be working on, like a staff level one. And lo and behold, this September in 2020, we actually have you running a course with us through the McMaster program for faculty development called "Banishing Busy." So it's uh, really nice that you're kind of like a guest faculty, I guess, for this faculty development podcast. So it's thank an honor. You very much for hanging out with us and teaching us some things. So can you tell me, like, what are your top three tips when you're just getting started with organizing yourself? Let's say you know after this whole pandemic thing, a lot of people have put their lives on hold and many different ways and they have to dig themselves back out and get into the headspace. So what are some tips that you can think of that are, you know, like you don't have to give away your whole course, obviously, or all your secrets, but like, what are some three basic things that we could all start tomorrow to dig ourselves out of the procrastination cycle?
2: Well, the way that I approach thinking about time management and procrastination is in three main spheres, cognitive, motivational, and operations. And a lot of times we think, oh, it's the operations. I just need to get myself together and get my stuff together and get things on my calendar or get stuff done. But really, when we look at it, a lot of it comes down to more deep levels of motivation. So why am I motivated to do this? Or am I even motivated? And then cognition, how we think about things. A lot of times our own thoughts are what hold us back. When we're afraid of failing or we're afraid of feeling the shame of not doing as well as we wanted, then we avoid starting things. So there's often a big activation barrier to starting new projects or starting things that feel risky because of that fear of failure. So I would say one top tip is think beyond just the operations and start thinking a little bit more deeply about what are the thoughts that you're having that are holding you back. And then look at what is your motivation for doing whatever it is that you're having trouble procrastinating on doing. And then think about the operations rather than kind of focusing on that outcome.
0: That's really succinct. I really like that. So again, that's cognition, motivation, and operations. I like that. It's simple, straightforward. There's like three things that you have to think through, overcome, and then work on Mm -hmm. making happen, right? So I like that.
2: We definitely don't have time to flesh out all of them, but we could talk about, for example, if you want to delve a little bit more deeply into motivation, that's one that I think has a lot of interesting nuances that we often aren't aware of in our own thoughts.
0: So yeah, why don't we talk about that one a little bit more? What do you think are some of the barriers in terms of motivating yourself to get over into the activation zone, into action?
2: So there's a lot to unpack here. It goes all the way down to understanding our own missions and identifying our own values. So I'll I'll give you an illustration in the motivation category with an action step that we can take. So often we feel what are called dual or competing motivations, or I think about it as motivational conflict, and often it's between our higher brains, so our prefrontal cortices are the most developed, strategic thinking, executive function, parts of our brain, and those are the parts that say, I want to do this long-term action, such as I want to be healthy, or I want to accomplish this goal. And that prefrontal cortex sometimes is in conflict with motivation from our more base desires, or our... Sometimes it's called the lizard brain, the limbic system, the part of our brain that we share with all the other animals, or at least the mammals. And I think about that as our inner toddler. So for example, when you feel things like, I want to eat the cake for breakfast, but I also want to be healthy. You want both things. You are motivated to eat the cake. It's there. It's delicious. It's chocolatey. You really want to eat that cake. You're motivated to eat the cake, but you're also motivated to say, no, I'm going to eat the all bran instead. I'm not going to eat the cake for breakfast. And the reason we have this conflict is because there's this clear, tangible, concrete, immediately gratifying cake in front of us. And then there's this more abstract, long term goal that we have that's much less concrete and tangible. And the same principles apply when we're dealing with our time. Should we work on this project or study, or should we binge on Netflix, which is that concrete, immediately gratifying reward? And of course, The goal is to follow our long-term, not our short-term rewards. So there's some ideas for what we can do to strengthen our resolve in that moment. So should we just grit our teeth and force ourselves to not eat the cake or not watch the Netflix? Well, you can, but it actually exerts a lot of energy when you use up your willpower in that way. Willpower is pretty interesting. They've done some cool experiments on this where they have people sit in a room with really, really fresh, nice chocolate chip cookies and they say, don't eat the cookies. I don't know if you've heard these experiments versus if they have you sit in a room with some radishes and they say, Teresa, don't eat the radishes, right? And then they have you do a test of willpower there's a lot of different tests you can do but think about it as you know doing some complicated puzzle that actually has no solution and they measure how long you do it for and the people who sat there resisting the cookies then had less willpower left over to do the tests afterwards so the long and short of all those experiments that they've done are that we have a finite amount of willpower and when you've drained your willpower two things happen not only Are you less able to resist those immediate gratifications, but you also feel the urges for the immediate gratifications more?
0: That makes me think of I'm coming off of a night shift and I drive by McDonald's and obviously at that point, because... I have been delaying gratification because I have been working really hard because I'm tired, disinhibited. Guess where I am in the drive-thru yes, within five in the drive-through. seconds, right?
2: And you're not just getting like mm-hmm. a decaf coffee. You're getting yeah. like a super sugary, creamy, some sort of drink with whipped cream, right? Or it's or, or a breakfast sandwich. <laughs> or which is my, my, my Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> it's like my my temptation is always the sausage McMuffin, McMuffin.
2: <laughs> yeah. So that's a state called ego depletion. So not only does that sausage McMuffin look extra attempting to you but you have less reserve to resist it so we can just you know grit our teeth and resist the urges for these things but there's actually a better way and so i'm gonna what i can give you guys is a mini buffet of ideas so i wouldn't use all of these at once but pick and choose based on the situation for what you want to use and the goal is to work upstream of where you're in that situation where you're tempted by the sausage thing. I don't know. I don't go to McDonald's, but (laughs) whatever it is, tempting thing with fat and carbohydrates. So first, instead of even focusing on the outcomes, what I recommend is to decide who you want to be. I'm a big fan of the Stoics and Epictetus is one of the Stoic philosophers who lived around 2000 years ago. And he wrote, first say to yourself what you would be and then do what you have to do. So first decide not what outcome you want, but who you want to be. So even more than wanting the outcome of being healthy or getting a project done. I want to be a person of immense self-discipline. I want to be a person of equanimity. I want to be a person who can drive by that McDonald's and not even bat an eye. I want to be a person who does what they say they will do, who finishes what they started, who has control over their thoughts and emotions. So that gets at your identity at a very core level, not just the outcomes or the goal. And next, once you have that identity goals, clarify your desired other outcomes. So why do you wanna be healthy? Or why do you wanna study? Or why do you wanna work on this paper or this grant? What does it mean to you? Why does it matter? And then try to make that nebulous abstract goal of being you know, successful in this grant more concrete. So you can do that, for example, by setting more specific strategic SMART goals. So yes, you have this goal of, you know, writing a grant or a paper or doing a research project that's maybe five years out, but what do you need to do this week? What do you need to do this month?
0: So It sounds like smaller targets so that you can mm-hmm. more easily achieve them will give you that sense of accomplishment and make it more doable. It's kind of like the idea of you don't climb Mount Everest in one leap. You have to take it one step at a time, right?
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Or if you're a Frozen 2 fan, which I am, you know, oh, like totally. it's the next right step, right? Do it's the right next so right all, thing. By-
2: Yes, do the next right thing. One one
0: step forward, then right next thing, and it's there in front of you, and you're heading towards a goal, not trying to achieve it in one fail swoop.
2: Exactly. Another thing you can do is think about how you can learn to love the process itself. When you first start exercising or lifting weights or running, usually it feels terrible. People are all like, oh, you should exercise. It feels great. And then you try it, and you're like, they lied to me. This feels terrible, and I hate every minute of it. But then once you do it for a while, then you realize that you kind of start to like the process. The same can be true of doing hard work. You can learn to love the process. And even if you don't always love the work itself, you can like the process of becoming the person with the characteristics that you identified. You enjoy feeling yourself becoming someone who's disciplined, who's reliable, who's punctual or whatever it is that was important to you. Then here's the trick. One of the most important parts to think about in terms of not having to use up your willpower is adjusting your environment. So in your example, Teresa, that would mean not driving past the McDonald's. So change your route with your car so that you're not putting yourself in that situation or put the cake away, put it out of sight. Don't have your phone next to you when you're trying to work. Put it in another room, turn it all the way off. We are constantly seeking you know, distractions like phone or email or doing shallow work because it provides tiny little hits of dopamine frequently that addicts us to it. So we feel rewarded, but also wanting more because it's not quite enough dopamine to really make us happy. So it's kind of a perfect storm of temptation that makes us create habits that continuously seek distraction and tiny rewards from things like our Twitter, our email, etc. So changing your environment can help make the right behavior easier. Yeah,
0: excellent. So you're just making the tempting things just harder to get to. It's kind of like I put the Oreos in the top shelf where I can't reach them and I have to go ask my partner or I have to go get a chair to go get them. Right. That's, That's where I hide them when I want to make it harder for me to just have another Oreo. Exactly. There's a lot of product placement going on in this podcast, but I <laughs> have no, we
2: have no. We are not paid by no McDonald's or Oreos. For Oreo. I know <laughs>
0: Mr. Christie is like laughing and and loving the fact that we're mentioning Oreos right now. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, like I mean, I think that the original the original studies around this was in kids, actually, right, with the marshmallows. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that the kids who were basically put in a room and said if you don't eat this marshmallow that's staring you in your face I'll give you two when I come back and the adults would leave the room and you know the kids would eat the marshmallow or not and there were kids that would be in what we call two marshmallow kids and the two marshmallow kids often actually do make it further on in school and they're able to delay gratification uh, because they need to do that and to be honest most of our medical students and most of our faculty members in academia, whether you're nursing or, you know, you've done a PhD and you've arrived. So you're probably a two marshmallow kid. Mm -hmm. It's just that any time that we tax your reserves and make Mm -hmm. you exhausted and you're emotionally wrought, you're physically fatigued, you're all of those things, you have no willpower anymore. (laughs) And so that's what it is, right? When you're just, you've zapped all of your willpower. And even though you are the two marshmallow kid, all grown up, you revert to the one marshmallow kid. Yeah. Kinds of fatigue, that's, right?
2: that's a great way to, to view it. And if people aren't familiar, those are experiments done by Walter Mischel back in the 70s in Stanford. And he found that the kids who were able to delay gratification were more successful in school, had better social lives, had better career success. And you're right. I think one key change that happens when we become faculty is that Through all our education and training, there's somebody telling us, delay now, you'll get that marshmallow later. Once you're a faculty member, you'll get that second marshmallow, so delay. And so you go through medical school or PhD or graduate school or fellowship, and you're constantly delaying the marshmallow. And then now you're a faculty member, and you're like, hey, where's my marshmallow? I've been delaying all this time. Where's my second marshmallow that I've been waiting for? And there's no marshmallow at the end of the rainbow. (laughs) Or maybe there is, you know, maybe you were looking for that academic freedom or, you know, a higher paycheck and you have that. But what's missing is the marshmallow of feeling that sense of reward or that sense of now I've gotten here. And often I find with junior faculty, they kind of work so hard on this treadmill, they get their spot as a junior faculty and then they feel like, well, now what? There's nobody telling me, now you've got to work towards the next marshmallow. So you really have to forge your own path. And that's why, especially the junior faculty time, is so critical for people setting their course to avoid that kind of doldrums of, well, my expectations were up here, but now I'm finding I'm not meeting them. This isn't what I thought it would be. And there's that disappointment gap between your expectations and what you find yourself in, even if it's a great job. 100%. We
0: 100%. You're not going to walk into a mountain of marshmallows for all the marshmallows <laughs> you gave up over the years. Exactly. And so with that in mind, <laughs> I can imagine, I mean, in my head, I'm thinking all the marshmallows that all I've delayed, marshmallows. if I could put them all into a giant swimming pool, I could <laughs> swim in marshmallows. And that would be quite an image. But but it, it's true. Like that. that's what we put off. We put off a lot of things. We put off you know, major life events, some people put up to having children. Mm-hmm. Like these are big not real marshmallows anymore. They're actually big parts of your Important life. Important things. Yeah. And so I think that a big part of it when you're a junior faculty is that remember your needs don't need to be put off anymore too and so Mm -hmm. like you know I always kind of conceptualize that when you're junior faculty you should attend to your clinical if you're a clinician because you have to carve out your clinical skill you're still not fully baked and we never really are so you have to tend to that always you have to think about your academics because you're here at a teaching hospital or teaching center and those of you who are full-time academics are laughing because like that's your job it's true you have to tend to the academic work you have to tend to your leadership capacity those kind of things because that's part of what the academy expects. And then you have to tend to your life. And you have to tend to the fact that maybe you put off going on that dating app for some people, maybe Mm -hmm. it's putting off having, you know, two kids in the picket fence, or even just having the dog that you've always wanted, or moving to a city where you always wanted to live. These are things that you want to try to keep in mind when you're at the end of your training and thinking about where you want to be. I think that those are all things that you can conceptualize. And when you're junior faculty, it's part of your job to actualize some of that. You have to make the marshmallow come to life now.
2: And that's hard. And, you know, when we talk about procrastination, we think about it in terms of work. But actually, if you look at the top five things that people in general procrastinate on, health is number one, then career, education, community, and romance. So you mentioned, you know, get on that dating app or fill out your dating profile, but it's not just about procrastinating on our work and, oh, we should stop procrastinating so we can work more. It's let's stop procrastinating on our work to create more time for everything in our life. And let's stop procrastinating on things like health or community or friendships or romance. It's really both. They're tied to
0: each other, right? Because you have a limited amount of bandwidth and that bandwidth is time. And so in mm-hmm. 24 hours, you have to sleep a bunch of it because our brains will go batty if they don't, right? And you'll be overly fatigued and you'll keep being in the drive through McDonald's and wonder why. Mm-hmm. And then everything else falls off the gap. You have to make yeah. sure that you're reserving time to re-energize yourself. And so whether that's meditation for some people, going out with friends for other people, or right now, I guess it's like- Zooming with friends? Zooming this during <laughs> the pandemic. So I guess it might be just hanging out with friends by Zoom. But it's about finding that time to rejuvenate yourself. If you play music, you have to carve something out that time out you know you have to spend some of it on yourself but it also means that you can't have this 17 hour ritual to write one paragraph in that paper you have to find a way to stop that part of the procrastination so that you can literally open your word document and write that paragraph
1: exactly and then
0: be done it and then you can move on to other things right so these are the things that you're you're really striking at the core of some of the things that we do to ourselves and I think that you have to also, unlearn some of the practices that you've had so that you can be more efficient as well. So Absolutely. just as you said, like drive the longer way, scenic route, to avoid the McDonald's. <laughs> it's also thinking about how we can actually shortcut things a little bit on, mm-hmm. on certain things. So I like to have templates, for instance, when I'm writing a paper. I don't start with a blank page because I hate blank pages. I have like all the headings already laid out. And so it's a lot easier to then say, oh, what I'm going to put in my intro, what am i going to put in my methods, right? Because the headings are there staring at you. So little hacks like that, I think,
2: can help kickstart your productivity. And, Another you know. cool trick that you can use is what's called implementation intentions. And this basically means pre-planning ahead what you're going to do. It's funny how if, you, if you, I ask you, hey, Teresa, are you going to vote this year? You'll probably say yes. And there's some probability that you actually will. But if I say, okay, I want you to tell me what date you're going to vote, what time, where you're going to vote, how you're going to drive there or get there if you're going to take the bus or walk, then just by planning that, you have a much higher probability of actually turning up to vote. And the same is true when we think about doing things in our lives. So you mentioned sitting down to write a paragraph of a paper and it takes you all eight hours of your day, whereas you, you know, it should only take you really 20 minutes. Well, if you plan out and say, okay, at 9 a.m., I'm going to sit down and write this paragraph. I think of this as the clue method. So instead of just saying, okay, I'm going to go to work today, you say, you put it on your calendar. It will be Professor Chan in the study from 2 to 4 p.m. with the methods section of your grant proposal. Or it'll be Colonel Shenby in the library from nine to 11 with my end of term papers to grade. So you need to be as specific as possible and that will increase your likelihood of actually doing it.
0: Yeah, I love it. In my calendar, that's what I've been increasingly doing is booking time with myself. And I will actually even put the Google Doc link or the Dropbox link to exactly the document I need to open because it's there. Just like the Zoom links are all there in my calendar now, it's just a life, simple life hack that has decreased the barrier because then I don't have to go searching through my Google Drive, it's literally Mm -hmm. slapping me in the face. And when I I can (laughs) copy that calendar into the other days where I have blank room, and then it also lowers the barrier there that I'm clicking into the link and I'm doing the next part and the next part and the next part. So I love it. That's great. Well, thank you so much for all your time. I really appreciate this great discussion. You're so evidence-based and you've clearly read the literature around all this psychology stuff. Do you have a final thought that you wanted to share with us uh, about what's one more thing we could do?
2: Well, one thing is just to stay hopeful. If you are somebody who is chronically procrastinated or you've just gotten into, like you said, these habits that you don't even think about it uh, or how you plan your time, you don't even think about it. You just kind of show up passively in your life. I want to encourage you that you can change. There are lots of ways to improve things. There are lots of ways to break habits. It takes intentionality. It takes work, just like getting fit or learning to exercise or learning a new skill, learning tennis, you would never think that you would just walk into a tennis court and suddenly be good at it. And yet as faculty, we're expected to walk into our job and suddenly be great at managing our time and competing demands and just a lot of overloaded schedules. But there is hope, there are ways to improve it, there are ways to learn, and there's ways to move forward. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, I think it's just like anything else in healthcare,
0: we're always hopeful that our patients can change, right? We're always hoping that they can give up smoking, that they can commit to rehabbing, uh, you know, an injury that they had or recover from a stroke. And our patients can do those kind of things, which are really, 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 really big. We can probably change our habits to drive around that McDonald's rather than to it. So (laughs) thanks so
1: much. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to the MAC PFD Spark Podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.